From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair podcast. It's Monday, Zach. How was your weekend? Oh, you know, pretty pretty low key, all told. Uh, one of the one of the chiller ones after a very very hectic week before. Uh, so you know, it's been been nice to, to have a little little calm in the summer. How about you? Yeah, pretty uh, similar. <laughs> uh, weekends are pretty low key right now. So yeah, just uh, lots of baby making, time. Baby time, making cocktails at home, seeing some family. Such as, what have you been making? So, just most notably, we made paper planes this past weekend, not one that we make often, and I don't know, I think I'm on the fence about this cocktail. Oh, interesting. I don't know, we made the classic spec with all the, you know, classic ingredients, and at first it kind of tastes like a Flintstones vitamin, but then it grows on you. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt that there's an element of the cocktail and it's like really traditional formulation where that combo of Aperol and Amaro Nanino is like a little, like you know, maybe verging on sweet for, for some palates. Um, I think to me, my one of my issues, I guess it's if you can call it an issue with a cocktail is like, they're kind of too easy to drink. Like mine yeah. always is gone very quickly, which like, you know, <laughs> you could argue whether that's a good or a bad thing about a cocktail. Uh, depends on whose perspective you're taking, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's a really it's a complex enough cocktail to be good, but it's not super challenging, which is probably why it's become so popular. Yes. I mean, that's why we made them, because they're kind of the paper plane is everywhere right now, it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been talking a lot about it at the at the office in the shop, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, what we had this weekend. What about you? As you may or may not be aware, Joanna, the Major League Baseball All-Star Game was in Seattle last week. and I Oh, did to... you post about it? I Were did you post about, about it. it? Yes, <laughs> yes, I was. Um, just a little bit for those of you who follow me on Instagram. And uh, Caitlin and I went to the to the Home Run Derby one of the nights. And before that, we went to uh, a cocktail bar pretty near the stadium uh, called Creatively Good Bar, which is indeed a good bar. And uh, had a couple <laughs> of drinks there that were fun. One was uh, just a really pretty classic blackberry bramble um a drink that i think we've talked about on the podcast before a sort of belief that this might be a year for the bramble it's a great drink uh you know lots of blackberry flavor uh blackberries are like such a iconic fruit here in the pacific northwest although it's a little before blackberry season so probably the the true peak will be in august for us here uh but it was tasty and then i had a watermelon poblano margarita also very good definitely got me in the mood for watching um people hit baseballs a long distance in quick succession. <laughs> um, I think outside of that, you know, it was, it was a pretty, you know, it's been, it's been pretty restrained for me a little bit. It's been just, you know, <laughs> this is like deeply too much uh, dad podcast content, but like my son is going to summer camp that starts quite early or at least his uh, drop-off time is quite early. So my sleep has been a little curtailed. So I've been like, mm, do I really need that drink tonight? And it helps me, get to sleep on the one hand but the next morning's Mm -hmm. a little rough so it's been a little bit of uh, a quieter time drinking wise but uh, i don't think that's gonna last for a whole lot longer so i'm adjusting (laughs) to the earlier mornings let's put it that way good thank goodness yes all right do you so today's topic do you want to get us into it sure so it's interesting you know we we talk on fridays often about things we've read on the site and this this uh conversation is also kind of prompted by something that um ran relatively recently on the site and and touches on i think like an interesting conversation that i think we've brought up or at least i brought up a couple times and and i'm 
I wanted to talk about it both because I think it's it's a in and of itself an interesting conversation and it's an insight into what I want to talk about is kind of like the one of the fundamental kind of conflicts in in bars and in cocktails right now. So a piece by Hannah Staub uh, about um, called, you know, is there room for pre-batch drinks in the era of the $20 cocktail? And in it, you know, it's kind of this exploration of a phenomenon that I've noticed. I think we've had a listener write in about it um, yeah. and just this kind of real kind of like, well, wait a second, if I'm paying you kind of what are now kind of the the almost going rate for a lot of drinks, i.e. upwards of $20 in a lot of cities, and you're essentially just pouring something from a bottle into a glass and handing it to me. I mean, obviously, it's not quite that simple. You're presumably garnishing it. Maybe you're shaking it or stirring it or something. But but if if I'm not sort of getting the whole dog and pony show of you assembling a cocktail, <laughs> then kind of why am I paying this price? And so I wanted to get into this. But I, I but at first I wanted to obviously, you know, you've read this piece, Jenna. Like, what was your takeaway or what were some of yours? Yeah, I mean, I think my approach to pre-batch cocktails is very similar to some of the people in the piece like yeah exactly that like why am I paying this much for you to just pour something into a glass for me um, but when you kind of get into it and, and some of the reasons why bartenders choose to do this or design their bar programs around pre-batch drinks it does make a lot of sense um, you know some of those reasons being for time uh, obviously um, when you have a big bar program having these drinks kind of pre-batched um, makes a lot of sense especially for higher volume bars um, but also I think it it affords bartenders you know more creativity and or the opportunity for more creativity and innovation with their drinks be that they wouldn't be able to get if they were making things just to order yeah, I mean, this is kind of what I want to explore here, because I don't think you're wrong, but I also kind of think you're wrong. Or, or I should say, I think that the bartenders who, who are quoted here and those who kind of espouse this notion are right narrowly, but wrong broadly, I guess is how I would describe it. And what I mean by that is there is, I think, a trade-off that you have to make in any kind of, and it's true in, in all parts of the service industry, food otherwise, where you know, you are balancing as the front of the house, as a person who's customer facing, etc. the sort of difference between what is expedient and best for the bar program and what is best for the guest. And this comes out in so many ways, right? It comes out yeah. in how do you price things, right? Obviously, the guest would be thrilled if every cocktail was $6, but you can't run a bar program that way in most places. And similarly, every, you know, the bar bartenders in some senses might be thrilled if every single cocktail were, you know, very quick to assemble. Most of the work was done ahead of time and streamline in service was that streamlined. But a lot of us, and as we talked about actually on the Friday episode in the uh, a separate piece talking about the sort of multi-sensory cocktails, like for a lot of people, the point of getting a drink out is the show, is the performance, yeah. is watching the bartender make it. And that doesn't mean just pour it out of a bottle into a glass or thereabouts. It means, you know, putting ingredients together, measuring, doing all of the technique that quality bartenders are rightly lauded for. And yes, we understand, I think every drinker to some extent understands that there are certain elements of a drink preparation that can't be done to order. You're not going to fat wash a spirit to order. Yeah. I don't think. I mean, maybe someone is do probably someone is doing that. But for the most part, like that kind of thing needs to happen beforehand to be done best. But I think when you as a 
as a bartender, especially and as a bar program in some of these top cocktail bars, take too much of the drink preparation kind of out of the bar and into the prep kitchen. I do think something is lost. And I think guests are in some ways picking up on that. That's where the pushback is coming from. Yeah. I, so what do you think of there's this one, you know, argument that I don't quite buy myself, but I'm curious to know what you think. This idea that with pre-batch cocktails, eliminating the on-the-spot preparation allows for better service so that you can, you know, chat with guests and make sure they're having a good experience. I think that's kindly a little bit of bullshit. Like, Me too. For one, yeah, I don't want to talk to the bartender. I want you to make <laughs> my drink. I don't know. Well, I think there's some element of that, right? Depending on the experience you as the guest want to have, some people definitely go into cocktail bars and want to talk to the bartender. I mean, our our friend Tim McCurdy, doubtless, goes into lots of bars <laughs> and wants to chat up the bartender, sure. possibly to try and get free drinks out of them. No shade, Tim. I understand. <laughs> um, but also part of it is, yeah, each person going into the bar may want a different kind of experience. And a good bartender, a good server, et cetera, should be able to feel that out, right? This is a table or this is a guest that wants to chat. This is a table that's a guest wants to be left alone. And both are totally valid. You know, as long as you're paying your tab, it shouldn't really matter the amount you want to interact with your uh, with the staff as long as it's not excessive. You know, you're not keeping them from doing their other work. I honestly think the bigger point that I find real contention with, and it's actually espoused in this piece, and, you know, I don't know uh, Jonathan Adler, who's the beverage director for Shinji's, I, he, I've heard him on Tim's podcast. He's obviously deeply knowledgeable, very passionate. I actually think his kind of one of his quotes in here is actually kind of a little bit. I just don't agree with it, and it's that the what he says is the most important thing is the taste of the drink. If you can ensure that the flavor is consistent every time, guests right. should appreciate that. And I just don't agree. I mean, yes, your drinks should taste more or less the same every time, but absolute uniformity is I don't think necessarily a positive thing when it comes to something as personal and as frankly kind of individual as a cocktail and part of the joy of a drink part of the the pleasure of having a drink out is that you are again perhaps watching it be made yes there may be some slight variation for one our guests really equipped to taste the difference the very slight difference in two drinks made by the same bartender in a night i mean no one can really do that. I mean, maybe the bartenders themselves, the people who created the recipe, if they're straw testing or straw tasting everything, are able to discern, oh, this is a little bit off and fine. I'm not saying you mm-hmm. shouldn't try and kind of get as close to the platonic ideal of the drink every time as you do. But like, let's get off our high horse a little bit here about what the, the goal is to serve people and make them happy. And sometimes that means you know, doing things in a slightly inefficient manner to better give them the experience they're looking to have. And that I think is something that is lost in pre-batching because as I said, like you just, it just is inherently not glamorous. I mean, I remember early, early, early on and when, when sort of batching cocktails became something that was in vogue and there was a bar here in Seattle called Canon that you could order essentially like a your own individual little bottle of a cocktail. They had two or three that came in like a, mm-hmm. essentially like a little like flask bottle. And I always found that to be like, I was like, I'm never going to order that drink. Like, literally, you're just giving me a bottle and telling me, like, pour it in your glass over an ice cube. Like, the fuck am I doing? Why am I? Why am I paying you? Like, I'm doing the work here. I mean, obviously not. They're purchasing the spirits and they're blending them uh, ahead of time. But to me, it was so, so deeply, like, antithetical to the notion of ordering a drink at a bar that I just I never it never appealed to me. And I think the same is a little bit true of a lot of it. I mean, even barrel-aged cocktails, which I think you can at least argue, you know, there's a utility to that or it's doing something to the drink. And it, it, you know, yes, it's a sort of pre-batched format, but at least, you know, presumably 
the flavor is changing through the barreling process. And, you know, there's something to be said about that. But I just, it, to me, it's just, you know, if you can't put on the show, like, what are we doing? Yeah. I mean, I think the Shinji's example is like for a cocktail pro- program that's that elaborate, mm-hmm. like, I get that and wanting to ensure consistency with those types of drinks. Like, I think about, shoot, what is the place with the cold pizza drinks? Oh, we love. double chicken, please. Yeah, double chicken, please. Sorry. Woo. Like, if you, I think that they need to have consistency there as well for something like a cold pizza cocktail. Um, but for something like, you know, I remember I got a, this is not exactly the same, but I got like a Negroni on draft one time and it was mm-hmm. just terrible. Like for something like that, I, I just don't, I don't see the, I mean, I see the utility in it, but I don't, I think it kind of stinks. I think what's also really interesting in an interesting part of this conversation today is the fact that there are RTDs Mm -hmm. and, you know, why would somebody, when you can readily get, you know, these are pre-batch cocktails, right? RTDs. I had that Midori Sour a few weeks ago. That was a, you know, a bottled cocktail pretty much. Like, why would I want to go out and spend a premium to have that same experience? Yeah. Or think, Think about it this way, right? Like, imagine you did something like you went to a sushi counter or any kind of, like, open kitchen restaurant. And you're, like, excited. You're like, oh, man, this is great. Like, we're at the chef's counter. And then every every dish that you order, the chef, like, takes out of an oven or takes out of a fridge, unwraps, puts in front of you, and is like, here you go. You'd be yeah. like, what the fuck is this? Like, this is preposterous. <laughs> and even if, you know, the, the chef was able to convince you, like, no, this is... You know, we've made sure that every dish is exactly the way we want it to be. And we've done all this work behind the scenes. And like, you have no idea. We've spent days preparing this and doing that and doing this. And it's exactly the way we want it. You like, I would be like, this is dumb. Like, why am I doing this? Like, part of the point of this in my eyes is that. I'm watching the thing happen, right? Again, I'm I'm having the sort of dinner and a show, the drink and a show. I'm, I'm, I'm watching someone practice a craft in front of me, not just, you know, sort of (laughs) hand over my drink that was made by maybe them, maybe someone else who knows, like, so that I guess they have more time to chat with me or so that the bar is 2% (laughs) more profitable. Like neither of those are big motivators to me as a guest. And look, I understand there there's always, as we said before, there's always going to be a bit of a balancing act when it comes to, you know, kind of allocation of bar resources, right? Whether that resource is time or money or whatever. And you can't necessarily do every last thing to order. Like I don't get upset that a bar that the bartender might juice all of the citrus pre-shift. Like I'm not saying you gotta juice my lemon or my lime to order. Like that's fine. You know, some drinks they might do it, some bars they might do it. Sometimes if it's not busy, they might do it. But like we accept that there are going to be a certain number of, I don't even call them shortcuts, just like you know, sort of prep work that's done to make service viable in a volume bar or any just a bar where there are multiple guests. But at some point you tip over from a sort of reasonable level of prep to like kind of like doing all the work beforehand. And then I'm just supposed to kind of like, it's just, it's just so strange to me that that is like the paradigm or the model that some of these bars kind of aspire to, which is almost like, it's kind of sterile in a way. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that striking the balance, yeah, it's like striking the balance between, you know, having 
10 bottles for one cocktail versus like three sure um makes the most sense and that you're you're yeah measing everything out and you're doing batching the components but like when you're making the drink it's to order um so that there is some <laughs> some work and labor involved in in actual in the actual cocktail that you're ordering what do you think of like the freezer martini at bars see to me this is another situation where i think you run the risk of sort of muddying the water, not muddying the water, of kind of losing the thread of why people go out to drink. And look, I, you know, Adam's obviously a big proponent of the freezer martini. To me, like, I have a freezer at home. I can, yeah, I have at home. Yeah. I have the, the ingredients for a martini in the freezer at home. I don't really need to have every last, like, I, I just feel like, again, it's sort of like has gotten a far away from what the point what the appeal of drinking in those settings is. And obviously there are other appeals than just watching your drink being made to order. Like for one thing in lots of cocktail bars, you might not be sitting at the bar top itself. You might not be seeing the drink being made and it kind of comes over and who cares, right? You know, you don't really know exactly how much was done in the moment versus, you know, ahead of time. And, you know, that's all well and good, but I do think that, you know, there's just this element of like, like I think it's cool when when bars can use the fact that they are full time dedicated to the production of cocktails that reality to create things that would be very very difficult if not borderline impossible to do at home right and I mean think about like you know not just some of the stuff that's done at some of these bars you know the acids adjusting the fat washing etc which is all cool and I mean plausible at home but a lot of work but even just you know we've talked about this actually in reference to like tropical cocktails like how hard it is to have all the different syrups and things like that on hand. Not that they're difficult to make in and of themselves, but like how many different syrups are you going to have kicking around in your fridge so that you can make, you know, your version of a zombie the way you want it or whatever. And like, those are all great things for bars to do. And obviously, as you said, there's a, there's a total valid approach to a bar saying like, Hey, we want to have, you know, some of these things combined. We're going to pre-batch elements of the cocktail, et cetera, right? I'm not saying you got to pick up 10 bottles for every drink, even if the drink has 10 ingredients. That's fine. But I think that when you get kind of alarmingly close to like push button, receive drink, that is like, (laughs) to me, I don't want a vending machine cocktail. Like that's essentially what it feels like. And even if that, you know, is not the experience of drinking in a way, again, the the experience is part of the drink, I think is my is sort of the crux of what I am saying here that that, yes, it's cool if the drink is really, really good and tastes exactly the way that the last one I ordered does and is, you know, exactly the way that the bartender or bar director or cocktail creator, whomever envisioned it. But like, if you can't give me the attendant experience, then I am going, it's like an ungarnished cocktail. It's kind of like the thing is not complete, you have not finished the job. And that to me is just that's disappointing. Yeah. What about if, you know, I know that there are places uh, that have like more extensive cocktail menus and they're only able to do that because they pre-batch. Maybe you should get your cocktail list in order. Like this is to me like, (laughs) again, it's like it's like the Cheesecake Factory issue, right? Like do people who walk into the Cheesecake Factory think that it's reasonable for a kitchen to be able to offer like 400 entrees without there being like a lot of things that are just like done and come in in freezer bags like I, I, maybe they do i have no idea I, i'm not saying anything negative about cheesecake factory particularly like i know people really enjoy it and if that's as long as you're kind of eyes wide open about what's going on but to me it's like a cocktail list should have i don't know 
a dozen cocktails on it, maybe like as many as can plausibly be made by your bartenders at a given time. And if you, that doesn't mean people can't call other drinks. I'm not, I'm not saying you can only make those 12 drinks, but like maybe don't make a 40 cocktail list. If the act of making those cocktails is going to be so onerous for your bar staff that they can't do it any other way, except like at, you know, one thirty in the afternoon before anyone is in there. Like I just, again, like kind of what is the point of that? Like, I don't think people are, well, I don't know. Maybe this is actually a good question for the listener. So, you know, are you impressed by a 40 cocktail cocktail list podcast at vinepair.com? Let us know. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. Uh, I might be, but I just, to me, I, I am much more impressed by, you know, a relatively concise, you know, say eight to 12 ish cocktail list. That's, you know, balances a lot of different needs. Cause again, part of like being good at writing a cocktail list is being able to make a lot of different kinds of drinks, you know, or, or kind of meet a lot of different kinds of drinkers needs through a limited selection. I mean, it's not hard to say we have a drink for everyone when your cocktail list is voluminous. Like, sure. Yeah. You can write down 50 recipes and be like, okay, this has a drink for every kind of drinker, but that's not, that that's not skillful. That's just kind of inefficient. I also just feel like if you're, if you want to have so many drinks, you can just uh, have a more concise menu and then just turn it over more often. And yeah. then it's a good reason for people to return. I know you can't get the same drink again in that scenario, but you can try something else. Yeah. And I think the last thing too, and, and again, we'll, we've talked about this before in reference to some of these kind of bars is like, there are lots of different kinds of bars, even lots of different kinds of cocktail bars. And yes. I don't deny that there are times and places where something that were a bar that is so... um whose cocktails are so driven by this kind of incredible precision and preparation can be appealing. But I think that what becomes dangerous to me is when that sort of bleeds out into broader cocktail culture and it becomes, for lack of a better way of putting it, like kind of acceptable to to sort of like do all the work beforehand and then sort of just hand the customer a drink without like kind of showing them what all goes into it. Again, it, it also kind of, I also kind of worry that it demeans or not demeans, devalues the act of bartending, right? If yeah. it looks as simple to the customer as pouring, pouring something in yeah. a glass <laughs> and putting a lemon twist on it, like, why are they tipping you? Like, why are they excited about what you're doing? Like, you just, I could do that. And and that's never <laughs> the experience, that's never the impression you want to convey to your guests in that setting. I mean, you don't want it to look like you're, about to like collapse, but you also look like you're working, like you're doing something that they can't do because that's what to people's eyes justifies the cost more so than, you know, the specific list of ingredients or anything. Like if you look like you're doing something that the bar, that the bar customer cannot do or would not do, that's where people are like, wow, this is really awesome. And that doesn't mean every drink has to be an incredible labor. It doesn't mean that they all have to involve, you know, crazy, you know, egg whites and double shakes and blah, blah, blah. They just, you just have to look like you're working a little hard when it's busy. Otherwise people are going to question like what they're paying for. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be flair bartender. No. You know. <laughs> oh, it could um, be, you know, there you go. Be, Maybe sure. you can just flip that one bottle around like 50 times and it'll look <laughs> like you're doing more. Yeah. I think that'd be good. Um, all right. Well, I think this was a great chat. Thank you, Zach. And I hope you have a wonderful week and we'll talk again on Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. 
if you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire Vine Pair staff and everyone who's been involved in making Vine Pair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.